Some years ago, I haven't got it here actually, someone's pinched it. Could I just have it? There's a letter down there. Jill, Kathy's just sat on it, which is... That's, that's fine, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit bent, but it's all right, it's still readable. Fantastic. Some years ago, a well-known church, church received a letter. Very interesting, and the topic of that letter was their Sunday morning services. I'll read parts of it to you, not all of it, because uh, some of it we probably couldn't even share here, but this is what this letter says. Regarding this next item, I'm not at all pleased. That's a good start, isn't it? I'm getting the picture that when you meet together, it brings out your worst side instead of your best. First, I get this report of your divisiveness, competing with and criticizing each other. I'm reluctant to believe it, but there it is. And then I find that you bring your divisions to worship. You come together, and instead of eating the Lord's Supper, you bring in a lot of food from the outside and make pigs of yourselves. Some are left out, and some go hungry home. Others have to be carried out, too drunk to walk. I can't believe it. Don't you have your own homes to eat and drink in? Why would you stoop to desecrating God's church? I never would have believed you would stoop to this. And I'm not going to stand by and say nothing. When you come together, be courteous with one another. If you're so hungry that you can't wait to be served, go home and get a sandwich. But by no means risk turning it into an eating and drinking binge or a family squabble, etc., etc., etc. Pretty, pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? Imagine getting a letter like that in the church about your Sunday morning worship gathering together. If you were part of that church, just imagine the usual Monday morning question, you know. What did you get up to it on the weekend? Oh, I went to church. How was it? Well, you wouldn't believe it, actually, at church. I said, it was wild, man. You know, we had communion and, and a fight broke out over the bread and some of them people got drunk and, and, then, and then there was a fight amongst the singers. They screamed at each other and then, you know, the drummer whopped the, the, the guitarist over the head with his own guitar. It was really cool. What did you get up to? Well, just the usual, really. It was a bit boring, really, you know. Oh, you should come to church with me next week. It's really cool and just see what it's like, you know. That, actually, that letter was actually sent and received. And many of you would have recognized it as being... Paul's words to the church at Corinth from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Of course, I read it to you from the message, paraphrase. Seems to me there was something pretty shambolic about the church at Corinth. Would you agree with me? Their communion services were obviously a riot. Church is boring compared with that, isn't it? People were misbehaving, for goodness sake. They were stuffing themselves with food. So others were missing out. Some were actually getting drunk, for goodness sake. And this isn't the pub. It isn't the local nightclub. It's Sunday morning worship service. And I think it's quite strange because over the years, people have said to me, be great if our church was more like the church at Corinth. I don't think they meant that part, though, do you? <laughs> when you read the letters that Paul wrote, there's two of them we have, you find he had to address some pretty hairy situations. And their communion service was one of them. It was obviously completely out of control. Now we need to get some... Realize this, in the early church, communion wasn't a formal religious service at all. In fact, it wasn't even often part of a larger service, but was often in small groups, at homes. What they called the Lord's Supper was really 
a potluck meal together. People would bring food to share and things to drink. Obviously, they brought some stuff to drink. And at some stage during that meal together, they would just very informally remember what Jesus had done for them and put him at the center of what was going on. And personally, I think that's one of the greatest times to do it. Small groups are great for that, where you can have it in life groups or at home or in a small group setting because it can be very meaningful like that. But in the early church, they hadn't developed a liturgy or a style of service necessarily or a set way of doing things. The Gospels hadn't even been written, and not many of the letters that we have to read today were even written. So there was really little basis for them to realize, how should we have our communion service in a truly biblical way? And so it's interesting because a lot of us here realize this, that the central issue about Communion really should be Jesus being the central issue. The mechanics of it are not really the main thing. A lot of us here came from different church backgrounds, and some of you came from no church background at all, so you don't even know maybe what communion's about. And those of us from different backgrounds, and I came from one where there was no such thing as communion, we have different ways of doing things. We might even think that our way of doing church is the best biblical way. But really, I've discovered over the years that any particular church has just developed its way of doing things, its way of worship, and its order of service, if you want to call it that, in their own way to make it meaningful for their particular situation. So when it comes to communion, some have one cup, some have many cups, some have one loaf of bread, some have lots of different loaves, some have wafers, some have leavened bread, some have unleavened bread, some have grape juice, some have wine, some have Water, maybe some have, what, what do you mean? Some certain words are spoken in certain ways, certain things are done. All of those things are great and meaningful, but none of them is the only true right. biblical way, yeah. not the correct way. I've even had meaningful communion with water and a cracker because there was nothing else available at the time. There's actually nothing more spiritual or less spiritual then a particular cup or a certain piece of bread or a certain way of holding it or whether it's wine or whether it's juice or whether certain words are spoken or whether you line up to get it or whether a leader gives it to you or whether you share it together or whether you get your own or whatever, all of those things are symbols of the reality, not the ends in themselves. But they help us, hopefully, to have faith connection and should point us again to the wonder, the person of Jesus Christ and the power that's available to our lives because of him. So you can guess already I'm teaching a little about communion today. I'm not preaching today, I'm telling the truth to you. I'm teaching, all right? That's meant to be a joke. We do always tell the truth when we preach. Well, I always do, but I don't know about Paul Cargill and Jono and Carl. He's back next week, so. Here are some more verses that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians a little little further on from where I read before. These ones will be more familiar to you because they're in a, a version you probably know. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 20, 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Now, the Apostle Paul is referring back to the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples before he went to the cross. That meal is commonly called the Last Supper, right? What churches call communion today had its origins in, not oranges, but its origins in this Last Supper. And the Last Supper that Jesus was having with his disciples was in fact part of the Jewish celebration of the annual Feast of Passover. So let's look at that Passover connection for a moment. You'll find this in Exodus. You want to look through all the chapters in Exodus that really deal with this in detail. You can check up on that later just to make sure that I am teaching and not preaching this morning. Hundreds of years before Jesus, God's people were subject to a a terrible period of slavery and oppression which went on for 400 years. And eventually they cried out to God and said, God, please save us. And he raised up this deliverer. We know Moses who brought the message from God which said, let my people go. But the oppressors didn't listen to the message. So eventually, Moses brought a message from God warning there was going to be a big judgment upon the land. A terrible night was coming when the firstborn and every household was going to die. Now, of course, with God, there was always a wonderful provision for mercy. Who loves that about God? There's always mercy available. And at this time way back, before the cross even, there was a wonderful mercy available. Every household was instructed to sacrifice a lamb. The lamb was to be perfect. It was to have no blemish whatsoever. And then that lamb had to be killed. Some of the blood applied around the frame of the doorpost in the house on the top on each side. The people were told to stay inside the house until morning. Those that were inside the house under the covering of that blood of the lamb were safe. Those that didn't do this, the firstborn son in that home would die. That night, the household also roasted the lamb that had been killed. They ate it along with unleavened bread, and then in the morning, they quickly left the land of oppression with great rejoicing, where they had been captive for 400 years. That's a very brief little summary of what you'll find in a number of chapters in the Bible. In the book of Exodus. This was the very first Passover. Terrible night for those who didn't believe or follow in faith what the Lord had instructed them to do, but a wonderful night of deliverance and joy for those who were saved by the blood of the Lamb on their door frames. From then on, they were to commemorate this feast of Passover every year to thank God for his deliverance. So you're with me now. So here we are, hundreds of years later down the track. Jesus now with his disciples is celebrating this Passover and again celebrating this wonderful event all those years earlier, just before his arrest and his crucifixion. So here we have this Last Supper now. Disciples have gathered together with Jesus. The Passover celebration was going. They they understood this procedure. They'd done it many times in their lives. They'd participated over the years. They knew it well. Family and friends would gather together. They'd celebrate with a meal. A roast lamb would be eaten. Unleavened bread would be eaten. Psalms of rejoicing would be sung. And the story of God's deliverance of his people would be retold over again. On this particular Passover meal with Jesus which we now know as the Last Supper, things were going exactly the way the disciples were used to until Jesus broke centuries of tradition by doing something and saying something really extraordinary. As he was 
breaking the bread, and it wouldn't have looked like this, but it's the flattest one I could find. As he was breaking the bread and what they had been used to him doing, suddenly he says these words, giving it to them, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. They were shocked. Hey, John, did you hear what he said? You're sitting closest to Jesus. What, what, what did he say about the bread? He said it was his body. What, what does he mean by that? In remembrance of him. No, we, this is remembrance of what God did with our forefathers and we delivered them from oppression. What, what do you think, Peter? What, what is going on? You can imagine the confusion going on there. And just as they were trying to grapple with that, then he took the cup. It wasn't quite like this one, but pretty sure it was probably made of wood or something like that, they think, or it might have been a metal one of some sort. Interspersed throughout the Passover, there were a number of, there were four cups actually, and one of them was called the cup of thanksgiving. The disciples knew exactly the words that went with the cup of thanksgiving. They'd done this many, many times. So as Jesus lifted this cup, he then suddenly said, instead of the words they were used to, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. They were remembering the blood of the lamb that had brought salvation for household back in the first Passover. Now he's saying to them, this represents his blood. Wow, they must have been stunned by this. Jesus, their friend, had said many controversial things and done many controversial things. The authorities already thought he was blasphemous. This was the worst ever. He'd often tried to explain to them that he had to die. And they didn't understand it or didn't want to listen. But here Jesus, by using this, by talking now, graphically was saying to them, no longer look back to your forefathers' deliverance from their slavery as the greatest thing that's ever happened. It was just a forerunner of what is about to occur. The greatest event that has ever taken place in the history of the world is about to happen now. I am about to die for your salvation. I am your deliverer. I'm going to set the whole world free with the sacrifice of my life. So Jesus was about to fulfill the Passover with his own death. The bread, his body. The cup, his blood. The lamb, not just now for a household, but now Jesus, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the whole world. So the communion today, we know communion today, it's got its roots in that last supper. That Last Supper has its basis on the Feast of Passover. So when I take part in communion, what should my attitude be? Should I feel guilty, for instance? I realized if we were to write a list of all the sins we committed to date in our lives, and then you wrote all yours down, and then we added them all to everyone else in New Zealand, then we added Australia in, because they were worse than New Zealanders, and then the South Pacific, and then we put the whole world on top. How huge that list would be. It would have been an impossible task because every minute the database would grow by millions, wouldn't it? Yeah. Let's take a different angle. Imagine owing someone, say, $10 million. No, let's make it $100 million. Let's make it $600 billion. $600 billion. That sounds a good figure. What an impossible sum. What a, imagine the weight of owing a debt like that. No way to repay it whatsoever because you have to spend the rest of your life 
in prison. Suddenly, something happens beyond your wildest dreams. The person you owe all that money to deletes all the data and enters your, beside your name, paid in full. Wow. And here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Because of his death on the cross and becoming the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world, God comes and takes the record of all our sins and wrongdoing and the huge debt we owe. He presses the delete button and he enters in its place over all our names paid in full. Wow. Because Jesus has taken the punishment already. He has paid the price for our sin. He's taken the guilt and the shame so we don't need to feel guilty or shameful anymore. What a huge relief. What freedom it brings. The immeasurable grace of God. Wow. The price Jesus paid was big enough to pay for any sin that's ever been committed than ever will be committed. Present, past, present, and future. Let's look at Ephesians 1. I know this is not new for most of us, it's, you know, but I think we just got to remind ourselves. And just some of us who are maybe new to the faith don't, haven't heard it before. I don't know, but I'm just talking about it anyway. Ephesians 1, verse 6 and 7. So we praise God for the glorious grace He's poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. I love that verse, don't you? So when I come to communion, I'm not supposed to feel guilty. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it's Communion is never intended to be a time when I come and I've got to think of all the sins I've committed since last time I had communion and, 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 and I've got to confess them one by one. If only I could remember them all, there's too many. You know, I'm sorry to tell you, that's not what it's about. Yeah. Oh, but Paul, it says that we're not to take it in an unworthy manner and we have to examine ourselves beforehand. Yes, it does. Remember this church in Corinth? Paul tells us they had a few issues, right? When they came to their shared meal, it was supposed to be the celebration of the Lord's Supper. They were, and they were way out of line. You remember some were gorging themselves on too much food, and some were getting drunk, and others were going hungry and missing out altogether, and was being done in an unworthy manner. Because instead of putting Jesus at the center, they had made it into some sort of party, which had forgotten all about him. When the whole reason for the gathering in the first place was to put Jesus in first place. Yeah, right. They were disrespectful to God and they had stinking their attitudes to one another and they were meant to be about celebrating their relationship with God and with, with each other. So Paul's telling them, don't just plow into the meal. Remember why you're having it, who it's for. It's to celebrate Jesus. And while you're at it, respect each other, care for each other, love each other. Have the right attitude towards one another because you're all part of the same body. It's the body of Christ. Then his second letter to Corinthians. Chapter 5. Paul says this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Great verse. You notice what it says? When we live in him in relationship with God by faith in Christ Jesus, we then become the righteousness of God. That's a weird statement. That's, that's really, that's amazing. So 
But what it's saying is our righteousness, or our right standing with God, if you like, or our rightness is not based on what we have done and what we haven't done. It's based on what Jesus Christ has done. We so wrongly look at our wrongness often and what we've done wrong, and we should be looking at what Jesus has done right. None of it's based on what is wrong with you. It's based on what's right with Jesus. What a difference that makes to all of us. Because everything's right about Jesus, don't you agree? At communion time, it's not look at what you did. It's look look at what he did. So I'm not supposed to come to communion with a sin-focused and weighed down with guilt or trying to think up something to feel guilty about. I'm to approach it focusing on the wonderful grace of God. It's been poured out by the death of Jesus Christ. Sure, if I feel convicted of something, I need to repent of it and move on. Of course I do. But I don't approach it, approach it with a sin consciousness, but rather with a grace consciousness. So I shouldn't feel guilty at communion time. Well, should I feel grief and sadness maybe? You know, there have been times when communion, I think very wrongly, has become like a funeral service for a good man who's died. And even the Feast of Passover wasn't a sad service about the lamb that was killed. It was a glorious celebration, or it is still for, for the Jewish faith, a glorious celebration of deliverance. Right. Sure, we should have a sense of awe and wonder. Yes, but not grief. Communion is not a time of sadness at someone who's died with sad songs and mournful voices. It's a time to remember all that death has achieved for us. It's our forgiveness. It's our freedom from sin. It's the right standing we have now with God the Father because of the sacrifice of Jesus. It's the life we have now in relationship with God, the endlessness of blessings we have as his sons and daughters, and so on and so on. We can rejoice for all of that, can't we? And it's not even a memorial service. You can't have a memorial service for someone who's alive. Yeah. And when he said, do us in remembrance of me, he wasn't saying, oh, remember me because I've did. He's using the word remember as remember what I've achieved for you. So communion is not a time to feel grief. It's a time to rejoice. Yeah. Yeah. Because the grave is empty. We sing about it. He's alive in us, among us, as we gather in his name. When we come to communion, look at the bread and look at the cup, the symbols remind us that what he's done for us on the cross, so it becomes a time of joy and celebration. It becomes a time of thankfulness. And one of those cups, again, of the four, was a, of the Passover was the cup of consecration or a cup of sanctification. So another response from our hearts at communion should be one of consecration. Here I am, Lord, along with my thanks. I give you my life. I surrender afresh to you. All that I have is yours. All that I am belongs to you. I am yours. It's a time of impartation. We expect to receive from him fresh hope and fresh faith and renewed strength and fresh vision and new inspiration and new encouragement, healing, comfort, and so on. And it's also a time of proclamation. We proclaim him, crucified Savior, risen Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, redeemer, healer, provider, counselor, and so on and so on. At its very essence, communion is a celebration of the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel, we've been talking about in recent weeks, we are loved, we are forgiven, we are pardoned, we are accepted, 
We are justified. We are looked upon as just as if we have never sinned. We are redeemed. We are purchased for God by the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. We are made righteous. We are in the family of God. We are one with Him. We are made new. We are delivered. We are set free. We are cleansed. We are made whole. We are sons and daughters of the living God. What a lot we have to be thankful for when it comes to communion. What a wonderful work of grace that God can continue to do in our lives. When we look at things that are just a cup and just a bit of bread or whatever it might be, but again saying, God, I want this to remind me of what you have done for me. And we'll connect again in our relationship as they partake in faith again of your grace by your Holy Spirit.